Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, if you could have, uh, tell the person you're talking to, Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, we'll look at. Let me start off with saying that um, I feel like uh, maybe there's a word for somebody here that um, you're you're going through a time in life where you need to uh, find an altar with God, where you need to kneel before Him, and maybe it's a transition period or it's a a moment when you um, the will of God that stands before you seems hard and. I was thinking of Jesus at the Gethsemane rock altar. Nobody knew God's will better than he did. And nobody knew the great sacrifice of following God greater than he did. And he knelt at a rock altar there in Gethsemane and he prayed, Lord, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he submitted to the will of God and and he was able to find strength in that to carry on with God's will that stood before him. And I don't know if there may be somebody here that you're just lacking the strength in your spiritual life that you need. And let me encourage you to find an altar. And we have an altar here, and I want to talk about that soon, why we why we call this an altar and what the purpose is. And I know a lot of churches are going away from um, this kind of format where you come to a place of prayer and, and kneel. Uh, but I think there's some value in having a place where we can do that. We need to have a place in our life for sure. I think it's important that we have a place in our church where we can do that as well and we can recognize need. Coming to this place right here is not just for salvation. I want to make that clear. We we think of the Billy Graham Crusades or some of the other crusades where they call people forward to receive Jesus, and, and that certainly we want to happen. But I hope that you know this is also um, symbolic of a place where you can find help in God, that we can come in, in our moments when we need strength or um, if we need to confess a sin, and let me just take the weight off a moment. If you see somebody coming to the altar, it doesn't mean they're going there because they have sin in their life. They may, but there's a good chance they're going for some other reason too. So uh, let's take a stigma away from going to the altar. It's not bad to go. We need to come and we need to experience what God has done. And um, it's a place where we can find strength. And for me, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, after I preach, usually I go and I spend a few moments in prayer. And the purpose of that is to say, hey, we all we all need to respond to this in some way. It's a place of response. When God calls us, we need to say yes to him. And, and often, it's so much better if we do it immediately. Do you know what I mean? Rather than wait, because the devil loves to get into our reasoning and help us to think of reasons why not to respond to God. Are you with me on that? That's a a thought in the direction of the altar, and I felt like I had to share that to be obedient. I hope it won't be at cross purposes with what we're trying to do next, but um, more on that another time. But I, I really felt like somebody maybe needs encouragement today to find an altar. If it's not here at your house, when you get home, spend some time with the Lord and draw on his strength and pray through till you find the victory that God has for you in that area. Okay, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Let me talk to you a little bit today about witnessing. 
I think it's uh, so important that we witness. That sounds like such can sound like such an old-fashioned term, but uh, when we share the gospel with other people, part of what we're doing is we're witnessing to the fact that God is real and He's been working in our lives, and we have been uh, those that have experienced what God has done. And do you know that He's called us all in one degree or another to be witnesses unto Him, right? Like not everybody is a stand up on the picnic table, shout it kind of witnesser. Okay? And I used to think it's wrong that we all should be like that. I don't know. I think that God uses us within the personality that he's given us to witness to the connections that we have and the area of influences that we have. And that may look a little different. Some people are picnic table standers and other people are quiet conversation in the back of the room kind of witnesses. And that's okay. But we need to be letting our light shine. And I think it's important that we do that. And so as we do this, I want to I, th- I think, I, I believe we're going to be starting here a, a series on uh, Thessalonians. And the first place to start with that is the first contact of the gospel with the Thessalonians. And, and that comes in Acts chapter 17. Why don't we read that? I, I'm in Acts 15. I got a little behind because I was talking. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1 and following. When Paul and his companions had passed through Am- Amphipolis and Apollonia, sorry, I knew these and I've practiced them, but they just escaped me. Uh, You say them and see how it turns out. (laughs) They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. (laughs) It sounds like uh, in Casablanca when the police constable says, round up the usual suspects. These are the bad characters. They rounded up the uh, bad characters from the uh, marketplace, and they formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city, They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some uh, other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they have come here. I guess that's what they call witnessing uh, in certain places, causing trouble all over the world. And now they've come here, verse 7, and Jason has welcomed them into his house, And they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond, and then they let Paul and Silas go. Thessalonica back then was a, a large city in the region of Macedonia. I think we, let's see if this will work here. All right, let's go to the next slide, if we could. I don't know if you can see that or not, but uh, we have here uh, a red line or an orange line, which is the Via Ignatia. It's a road that the Romans built, and it kind of goes um, along from Constantinople or Byzant- uh, Byzantium, and it goes all the way to the edge of Greece so that people can make a short, I don't know if it's short in those days, but ferry ride over to uh, Italy from there. And uh, one of the main cities that was on that was Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is still there today. It was named after uh, the sister of Alexander the Great, 
which shows that when you're great, even your sisters get cities named after them. Uh, It was a large and important city among the major highway of the Roman times, and it's still there today. It's the second largest city in Greece. Most of Greece's population lives in cities. There's about 11 million people there in Greece today, and uh, 5 million of those live in Athens, and two, two and a half live in Thessalonica, and then there's other small towns around. But uh, let me show you another picture um, that we took. We, we were there in 2018, and uh, we were standing in a square along the waterfront of the Aegean Sea. Uh, they have a Starbucks right along that waterfront, so Janie decided, you know, it'd be great, let's get a mug from Thessalonica. That would be really great. And so we walked along this waterfront down to one of the busiest Starbucks I've ever seen uh, there in Greece. And while we were on our way back, we got this picture. If you could just click it once, you'll see that that right there is Mount Olympus. I didn't see any of the pantheon of gods dwelling on there, but there's supposed to be Zeus up there and others. Uh, And right in the view of that mountain, Paul brought the gospel to the city. And uh, I loved this trip, and I'll tell you one of the reasons I love it, because it's, a, it's the destroyer of the gods, Jesus was, coming into these places, pushing out false ideas, pushing out false deities, and showing people true and lasting hope. That's exciting. All right, let's go to the next slide. Okay, all right, this, uh, click it one more time, because what we have here is Janie, that she's walked down these steps, and she's trying to get a fungus from the Aegean Sea. I don't know if that worked or not. All right, next slide, one more time. And this, if you'll click it one more time and one more time again, you saw where those red lines were. Um, That's the Via Ignatia, where they've excavated it in Thessalonica. This is the road that Paul and other people walked on as they brought the gospel to Thessalonica. All right, I think that's the last of it. Yep, good. All right, we're done with all of that. Um, what the Apostle Paul was looking to do as he walked the Via Ignatia, he's trying to proclaim the gospel, um, he's, he wants to bring new, good news to people, and his purpose statement in life was something like this. I think Acts twenty twenty four is really his purpose statement. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race. Remember what he says at the end of his life? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. That was his goal. I want to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying, and another word for testifying is witnessing, to the good news of God's grace. And this is is a good goal. This was a good goal, goal for Paul, and it is a good goal for us because the message that we bear is true. Hey, that's uh, so important that it's good that we're talking about good things. Do you know that there's a lot of bad news out there? And even as Christians, sometimes we can find ourselves talking about negative things. I don't think that, I'm not the, the kind of person that says you should never talk about a negative thing. I'm the kind of person that says, hey, despite those negative things, there are some really good things God has done. In fact, those good things supplant the bad things and that we have reason to have hope. And so we can know that we have great hope in Jesus. And so Paul had a missionary call that made this his main vocation. Not every not everybody has that main vocational call. Like probably a lot of us uh, um, have to go to a job somewhere where the gospel is not the main thing that your company is focused upon or your place of work is focused upon. Now, you carry with you 
the fact that what, what is of greater priority than what I do at my job is who Jesus is and what he's done in the world. That's, that's more important. Would you agree to that? Like at our jobs, that the more important work that's been done is not our work, it's God's work. Okay? I hope you say amen, because if not, we've got to back up and talk about this a little more. But I think that's the case, that we know that that's the case, but we still have to function within a society where we have to do work that a lot of our everyday busy work may not be gospel-centered, but our lives are gospel-centered. And that makes a difference in what we do and how we go about what we do and, and why we have a good work ethic and, and why we work with integrity within our job, even if it seems like... I don't know, maybe you're a baker and you're baking bread and it's, it's not clear exactly how that ties into the gospel. But while you're doing that, you're still Christ-centered. And maybe you're praying, as these loaves go out, Lord, would you touch the lives of those that they touch in some way? That's a, a great way, a great example of maybe how you can bring the gospel into your work. So what Paul's job was, his main job was to... Uh, reach the whole world for Christ, and and that was his his main job. He did do some work in order to meet the ministry needs, uh, tent making, whatever that whatever that meant, and uh, that kind of paid the bills and paid for his food for him and his travel companions. But his main thing is, I've got to proclaim the gospel. Now we don't all have that, but we do all have a mandate to be witnesses for Christ. We have that mandate to make Christ known, and. In so doing, there's a way to do it, and you and I can do it. It's not just for pastors and missionaries and uh, people that we consider ultra-spiritual, as if there's like this tier of really elite Christians, and we haven't quite made the cut, and we can't do that. There's not. The Holy Spirit erases the line where there's we, we say, there's, I'm not qualified to do that. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're qualified. And guess who has the Holy Spirit? The Bible says anyone who's called upon the name of Jesus has the Spirit of God living in them. You're qualified to do this work. Tell your neighbor they're qualified because they might not listen to me. They don't like me. Okay, you're qualified to do the work. All right, so uh, it's not going to look exactly like Paul, but it will probably have some similarities. Um, the message, for one, hasn't changed, thank God. The message hasn't changed. It's the same glorious message we've always had, the message that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and he's offered salvation and acceptance to all who will come to him and repent and put faith in him as their Lord and Savior. The principles haven't changed that much, and people haven't changed as much as you think. Come on, not true? Like, people are going to be people all the time. Yeah, we have some modern gadgets and some different distractions in life and maybe some ways that we've lived a little bit differently. But I bet if you you zoom out and you looked at the whole picture, you'd say, we're kind of like people have always been. How many have read an old, old Bible story and go, you know what? People are still like that. Okay. That's because this is the way that people are. And the opposition hasn't changed. Only perhaps in degrees. Like, in some places in the world, having a meeting like this would be hard to do without violence breaking out. Not violence within the church, hopefully, but violence towards the church, right? And so there's different degrees, but the opposition is still the same opposition. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's always been the opposition to what God wants to do. All right, let me mention a couple things here as we work our way through this. The first thing I want to mention is that the way to sharing the gospel, the way to witnessing, is through the common, 
the common. Okay, common here uh, means something like this Webster's definition, the usual, the ordinary, as the common operations of nature work, uh, the common forms of conveyance. We don't usually talk like that, but conveyance is some way of getting from place A to place B. Okay, so for us, an automobile probably, our feet as we walk, you know, uh, it's a conveyance. And so there's typical ways of conveyance. And so I want to mention here the way that they took. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17 here. So this is telling uh, the transition from the previous story in Acts 16 where Paul and his companions are at Philippi, which is also on the Ignatian Way or the Via Ignatia. And it tells us then when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. These are all places that are along that that road. So they're moving from uh, east to west. They're bringing the gospel. They're traveling along a certain road. And we know that because of the cities that are mentioned here. This is There's 100 miles passing through Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia to Thessalonica. And the desire was to go here to the strategic center of whatever the province was. Whatever the main thing was, we want to, Paul thought, and when we witness, we ought to, we ought to think like this, what's the most strategic way to do this? And he thought it's to, it's to hit the cities that have a lot of population passing through. Because when people, if there's a church there and it's effective, people come through, they're going to be impacted by the gospel. And then when they go out, they become missionaries too. And that's a lot of the way that the gospel spread. I'd like you to notice that the way may be the opportunity, okay? It seems to me here significant that Paul and his group preached along the most traveled highway in the Eastern Roman Empire. That seems to me like a common sense kind of thing. People would have always been coming and going, and if the gospel could take root along that highway, then it'd go to the world. This road transported not only ordinary everyday people, but also uh, famous people, Julius Caesar traveled this road, the Via Ignatia, he traveled this road. Uh, armies marched along this road, and in fact, that's why they were built, to transport armies. Um, Caesar wasn't thinking, you know what, let's build roads so that the gospel can be preached. He was thinking, we need to have one quick way to get our armies from place to place where they're needed, either for expansion or defense. And so they built these roads. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, but our interstate, we don't have an interstate here, but our interstates in the lower 48 were built to transport our armies. Did you know that? And then we get the advantage of them. Thank, thank God for that. And hopefully people have driven those roads, taken the gospel from place to place too. But this was the reason that the highways were built is to transport the armies um, throughout the Roman Empire. The armies of Antony and Octavian pursued the army of Brutus and Cassius on this very road and overtook them and defeated them at Philippi using th- that very road that we talked about, the Via Ignatia. And great wealth was transported across it. This road was used by merchants to carry things from city to city to transport gold, probably in the, uh, in the use of greed to try to get more and more and more um, to expand the empire and pronounce Rome to be the greatest civilization the world had ever known. These roads were used for that purpose. But the gospel is the most significant thing that has ever happened to this road. 
Do you know that? That, yeah, Caesar might have walked it. It might have been used to transport great amounts of wealth. It might have been used by armies. But the most significant thing this road was ever used for was carrying the gospel. That is significant, don't you think? There's some glory in that, that it's not just about uh, having those famous figures. But imagine this, too, that it was through this that the gospel was brought to Europe. Imagine this, too, coming in contact with famous people along the road. When I say that the way may be, um, let me make sure I'm getting this right, the way may be the, uh, may be the opportunity, then I'd like you to think about how sometimes it's the, in the process of going where God does work. Okay. Think about your stories from the Gospels, and you'll remember that it was on the, on the road as Jesus was walking along that the woman with the issue of blood touched the hem of his garment. Right on the road, and on the road, that very instance that Jairus comes and says, "My daughter has died, or my daughter is sick. Will you come pray for her?" And it's on the road that Bartimaeus cries out, "Son of David, have mercy on me!" And it's on the road that Zacchaeus sees Jesus coming and climbs up a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And Christ comes to his house, and it's on the road that Peter asks significant questions. Jesus asked the questions. Peter gave the answer, and Peter had more questions. It's on the road that many of the big, important things happen. And so he's using this particular road. And look, this may not seem extraordinary. Like, what are, what are we doing here? We're on Sunday morning. It's a little warm in here. We're talking about roads. Um, because I think it's important that we understand that sometimes the way doesn't seem extraordinary. It seems common. It seems the usual. And God uses things like this. I'm, I'm struck by how practical this is. That Paul would say, I need to go where the population is so I can preach the gospel. In not every scenario did he have a directing specific vision from heaven. Listen to me when I say that sometimes when we witness, we say things like, well, I don't feel led to witness. You don't have to feel led to witness every time you witness. Do you know that? You already have a mandate in place. Okay? If God directs you to do something specific, definitely do that. But until then, we have standing orders that we can witness to anybody we want to. Like, like unless God says no... You could talk to the next person you see that doesn't know Jesus. Everybody, it's open game here because we have a mandate. We're on commission, the great commission, from our Lord, who has, by the way, all authority in heaven and earth. Okay, so he can commission us to do things like this. But it struck me really how practical this is. So Paul, sometimes he goes certain places, and in one particular instance, a couple chapters back, uh, last chapter actually, He's trying to go to Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit says no, so he can't go there. All he's done is said, what's the biggest population center that I can go to to preach the gospel? And at that particular moment, the Spirit of God said no. And so he's like, well, I'll go this direction. And the Spirit of God said no. The reason was he was directing his course towards, to bring it full circle, towards the Via Ignatia, the, the Ignatian Road. And so he comes to that place, and he's like, well, where are the next population centers? He lands at Neapolis, and he goes to Philippi, and he gets kicked out of Philippi, and he just follows the road along and goes to Thessalonica there, and that seems practical. Sometimes we pride ourselves in being impractical. 
I don't, I don't know if you've experienced this, but in my growing up years in the church, we like to glorify the impractical things sometimes. We joy in doing things that don't make sense in the natural way of thinking. Inevitably, God is going to ask us to do some things like that, okay? So uh, some things he'll ask us to do, they don't make sense at the time he asks us. Uh, but there is, there's always a reason for it. I'm convinced of that. There's always a reason that he asks us to do something that in the moment don't, doesn't make sense. And maybe in light of eternity we'll understand it, but maybe now we don't. Um, when I was a youth pastor, we had a, a lady in our church who was our pastor of visitation and outreach. Her name was Sister Haven. What appropriate name. She was like the haven that people came to when they needed help from the Lord. Sister Haven. And she was the, the pastor of visitation and outreach. And one day, um, and she was older at this point. I don't know how old, but but older. And she was she was sick and laying in bed. Uh, but she sensed that God was telling her that you need to go to the grocery store. And, and um, there was no practical reason to go to the store until she got better. She didn't need anything at that moment from the store. She didn't feel like going to the store, but she obeyed God and she went. And when she got there, she saw a man crying in one of the aisles. Um, and so she she obeyed God and went. And she saw that man crying in the aisle, and she talked to him, and she led him to the Lord. Um, and he, he later became a, a hospital chaplain. She, he really bought in. I went to school with this guy. I didn't know it at the time, but I heard this story later about how she had done something that was kind of impractical, and it put her in a position to lead somebody to the Lord. Okay? And we like stories like that. So she didn't go to the store to buy peanut butter. Um, she went because God told her to. And there are other instances where things similar to this happen, like Philip is in the middle of a revival in Acts 8, and God says to him, I want you to go down to the road to Gaza. How did he get there? Do you know how he got there? He walked. He walked to the road to Gaza. Now, when it was over, God whisked him away in some kind of a whirlwind, but the way down there was very practical. Find the road, put your good shoes on, get going. That's very practical. And you see that, um, I was thinking about Peter in Acts chapter 12 when, uh, when he's in prison. And you remember that at night, they're going to execute him the next day. At night, the angel comes in and kicks him awake. And here's the first practical thing the angel says. Put your clothes and your sandals on. Like, I'm not going to do everything for you. How many wish you could just snap a, a, your fingers and you'd be dressed in the morning? You'd have to go through the process. Anybody else? You just, man, whew. wish you didn't have to waste so much time on little practical things. But, but uh, then the angel opens one gate and one door, and we go past guard and guard and guard. And then finally he gets out, and the angel leaves, and he comes to the John, John Mark's house. And what does he do? He knocks on the door. And I don't know if that strikes you in any way, but it strikes me as the angel has opened door after door, and now he's gotten to the place where they've been praying for him, and he's got a knock. And somebody has to come open the door for him. Somebody else. It's very practical, don't you think? That this is the, the beauty of living the Christian life, is sometimes the, the impractical things that God would have us do are meshed in with probably on a bigger scale the very practical things. And that's where this highway comes into play. You see, we love stories like that where we did the impractical and God showed up. But when I read the book of Acts, the majority of action seems very practical, and occasionally 
Then there are things that are impractical that God asks to do, but there's a reason for it. And the way may not seem extraordinary, but the message is always extraordinary. I'd like you to notice here that the, the way brought the way. The way that Paul traveled brought the way. What makes this interesting is that when Paul and his companions traveled this road, they repurposed the road. I don't mean in the way that we find old lumber and repurpose it and use it for something else, like on our wall or whatever, but he repurposes the road. Paul and his friends, they didn't wait for a Christian road to be built. Are you hearing what I'm saying? They didn't wait for a Christian road to be built. Uh, Like, we can't spread the gospel unless we're on the Christian road, the sanctified road, something like that. Um, He wasn't even concerned that that road may have been dedicated to false gods. Are you with me? And it probably had because they dedicated everything to false gods in those days. He wasn't concerned about that. He wasn't concerned about the fact that uh, this might have been used for military conquest. He used the road for the gospel, and he dedicated himself. That's significant. You know how many things like this we get, hang up, we get hung up on as a church? Like We used to think that you can't play pianos in church because they were used in bars. Well, that's true. They were used in bars. But we brought them in, and we sanctified them. That's not a piano. It's a keyboard. I just want you to know that I know the difference. But we bring them in, we sanctify it, and we use it for God's purpose. And guitars, we were like, for the longest time in the church. You can use pianos now, but you can't use guitars because those are used in rock and roll and country and other kinds of things that don't give glory to God. And you know what? We have guitars in church now, and we sanctify it, and we bring it in, and we use it for God's purpose, and the person playing it is sanctified. Right, Zach? Yep. And so there's purpose in these things. But, you see, we, we use very practical means, but the dedication is the dedication of ourselves, and we use the... There are things that we can't use because in one way or another, it would send the wrong kind of message. But this road is something they could use. And though the highways were built for political conquest, God used it instead for spiritual conquest in a positive way. They might have been built to transport armies that brought death, but when Paul used the road and others used the road, they were using it as missionaries to bring life. And the ingenuity of men who didn't know God built those roads for other reasons, but God commanded it for his purpose. And it really shows us that a lot of spiritual things are done in unusual ways, or usual ways, I should say, common things. Um, Susie and Audrey are getting ready to go to Africa, and I bet they're not waiting on a Christian airport to be built. They're going to fly into whatever airports are there and using the planes that other people have built and traveling in a very practical way. I hope you take an eye mask because that helps along the way. But... It's just very practical things that gets the job done, and it shows us that a lot of spiritual things are done in usual ways. It reminds me, uh, some of these things remind me of what Joseph said to his brothers. You intended something for harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Let me talk to you about the way through preaching, okay? We we talked about the way um, through the common, and now the way through preaching. And I don't mean how can you make it through a long sermon. You already know you already know how to do that by now. I mean that the way to see lives changed is through preaching. And when we hear preaching today, it's kind of got a negative connotation. Like we say to somebody who's a little bossy, you're, you're kind of preachy. 
and that's got a negative connotation to it, but that's not the way that it started out. Preaching is proclamation, and we have this thought, the preaching is what's done from a platform behind a pulpit, and we don't really preach, we witness, um, but I don't really think that's biblical either. I think every person is a preacher, you're a proclaimer for Jesus, okay? You might not have a pulpit, and probably thank goodness in some areas, because the moment somebody sees a pulpit, they're running for the hills, so you just share your, your story. You share the truths of the gospel. And preaching is accomplished through that. And this is the way that we see lives changed is through preaching. In fact, I, wanna, I want you to see that preaching is not a negative word. Look at verses 2 and 3 here. Look, we already made it through verse 1. So uh, verses 2 and 3, it's going to go quicker, I promise. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Jesus, the Messiah, or that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am uh, proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So notice this method here. If you're going to be a witness for Christ, um, you'll find that there are some methods that may come into place that help you. And I'd like you to notice that what Paul did is he started with those who had, uh, he had common ground with. Like, I think we tend to glorify like cold, cold call type of witnessing. Like you're going to meet somebody in Walmart or you're going to meet somebody on the bus or you're going to meet somebody here and you're going to witness to them. That's, that's great. But oftentimes uh, if we're living in the real world where we have real life connections, the best avenue for witnessing often is when relationships are already established. You know somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Oftentimes, we like the cold call witnessing because there's nothing risked in that. Like, if they don't like us, fine. We don't have to deal with them the rest of our lives. But if we witness somebody we know, we're concerned, like, they're not going to like us anymore. They're going to get mad. They're going to be turned off by this. Um, but I think that the, the thing that is gained by those kinds of relationships is that there's already trust developed, and they know if you're a faithful and consistent Christian, they know your life. And that's really important. So Paul reaches out to those who already have some knowledge of the Old Testament. He didn't go to the synagogue in Philippi, Philippi because there wasn't one, and so he found the next best thing. Um, he, in Thessalonica, there were a number of Jewish people, so he gathered at the synagogue to preach from the Old Testament. And um, this shows that Paul didn't think of himself as proclaiming a new religion. He was convinced that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. This, this is the method that he used, is reaching out to people he, he had something in common with. And if you can demonstrate some kind of common ground, usually there's an avenue for witnessing. Now, Again, God can do anything, so he may do the cold call kind of thing. But oftentimes, let's start in the area of our influence, and then if he should call us outside of that, be obedient there too. Notice the means. He spoke to them through the scriptures pointing to Jesus. That tells us um, what high place the Bible has in Christian ministry. Notice it says in verses uh, 2 and 3 that he reasoned with them. This word means to engage in a speech exchange. Uh, a conversation, a discussion, even an argument. Okay, so he's going to talk to them. Preaching isn't just a monologue like it is it is today, um, but it can also be a reason discussion where you talk and they listen and and they ask questions and you share and and that's part of the preaching witnessing of the gospel. And then it says that he explained. 
the KJV here has opening. He opened the scriptures. This is to explain something which was previously hidden or obscure. Part of our job in witnessing is to bring to light that which others have not yet seen. Okay, We're going to talk about what Jesus has done. Some people, when you say the name of Jesus, they have a whole bunch of false concepts that come up. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like the fact that even people wear crosses around their neck, but they have no allegiance whatsoever to Jesus shows us that we live in a culture we like to kind of throw his name around. We want to have a good luck because we're associated with him. We want it to ward off vampires or whatever. Uh, But we don't want to trust in him. And so opening the scriptures is something like explaining this is who Jesus really is. This is what he's really like. This is what he demands of our lives. And that's part of what Paul did here is he explained, he opened up, he made evident, he interpreted the scriptures for them. And then the third way that he did it is by proving. Um, King James here, if you have that, says alleging. This is to establish evidence to show that something's true. And I think this is kind of remarkable because we, we can tend to get this idea that witnessing needs to be this emotional thing where we need to be emotionally compelling. Yes, that's true. But part of this needs to engage the mind. As, as Joe was talking about this morning, the Hebrew concept of heart is different from ours. In ours, we think of the emotions. But the Hebrew concept would include the mind. It's how we think. And so we need to engage that aspect too because if people just have an emotional experience, then they're going to be about as flaky as can be if they don't get their mind engaged too. What he wants to do, what Christ wants to do, what the Spirit of God would like to do is engage the whole person. And that includes our mind as well. We have to think through these things. I'd like you to notice the message that this is what he was proving. If, if you say proving here, it goes on to describe that, that the Messiah must suffer. If you're taking notes, Psalm 22, verse 6, Isaiah 53, 3, Zechariah 12, 10. Uh, and this was an important point to concede because I think in early Judaism, not early Judaism, Judaism of the time period that Paul is preaching, there was a lot of people who were caught up in triumphalism. You know what triumphalism is? This is like, we're the greatest. We will overcome. There is no bad. There's only good days. That's triumphalism. And so there were a lot of people that have thought along those ways, that, that that's, what's, that's what really happens to people after they've been under overlords for five centuries, Babylon and then the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. And so, do you remember that song? I think it's from the 70s. It sounds like a disco song. Uh, that I'm in, I'm in, I think it's, I'm in the need of, I'm in a need of a hero. Is that what it is? What is it? I need a hero. Okay, that's, that was like the theme song for Judaism during this time. Sorry to, if you, if you got off track spiritually with that. But uh, I think that's really the case is that they're looking for some kind of a hero in this. And they fashioned their idea of the Messiah by considering only half the evidence. And maybe they felt they themselves had suffered and that the Messiah was the antidote to that. And, and so when Paul came, he proclaimed that the Messiah must suffer. And for many, that was really a hard concept to get their mind around, that they'd forgotten about Isaiah 53 where... It talks about him being crushed and bruised and, and beaten and uh, even the Father's wrath against him. They didn't have a concept of that. And so Paul is proclaiming that. 
And then he proclaims that the Messiah must rise from the dead, which suggests he also has to die, right? Psalm 16, verse 10, Hosea 6, 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Paul was proclaiming that Jesus is a triumphal Messiah, but in a different way than they expected. He had to suffer, but in suffering, he would also rise again and beat the greatest enemy of all, which is death. And then he proclaimed that this Jesus is the Messiah. So he must suffer. He must rise again. Jesus is the man we're talking about. And so he proclaimed that message. Do you know what? That's our message, that Jesus died. He suffered and he died, and he rose again, and Jesus is his name. That's our message still today. That's our message. That's a message that changes hearts and life lives. Look how important these are. This is the gospel. It's not believing in a better America. It's not becoming good people. It's entrusting God's Son. That's the good life. That's the, that's the good news for us today. Notice verse 4 here. It says here that some of the Jews were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. Uh, they were persuaded, and they joined. They began to be associated with Christ and his church and when it says they were persuaded, I'm interested because just a chapter before when it talks about Lydia coming to know Christ, uh, it says the Lord opened her heart or pierced through her heart. Okay, That's a little bit different language than they were persuaded. That sounds a little uh, not quite as poetic, not quite as um, powerful of a description. But one of the reasons for that may be is that Luke was there in Philippi and he saw the change happen to Lydia. Now he's just hearing somebody else describe it because he uh, he wasn't in Thessalonica. And so somebody else said, hey, all these people were persuaded. That's good. I'm going to write that down, put it in in the book of Acts. And the difference reminds us that God's uh, the gospel appeal is not just to the heart where he opens hearts, but he opens the mind. We have to change our mind. Repentance means to change our mind and therefore uh, have a changed life as a result. To me, this is so important, and probably you get tired of hearing this, but I want to I wanna explain it, is that I got the impression growing up in church that any kind of thinking or engagement with the mind was unspiritual, and you shouldn't think about it. You just need to believe it, and I when I, when I learned that thinking was not unspiritual, I started to see the strong evidence for this um, in Scripture, how it reinforces our faith. Because as a kid, I was always thinking, something's going to come along and it's going to show that this is not true. I was worried about that. Uh, I believe it, but Lord, help my unbelief is my prayer. And what I found is that when I went to school, they taught us to think critically. And in thinking critically, I thought through some of these things. And it took me a little bit of a while to adjust, but what I realized is that there's really, really good reasons for believing what we believe, better reasons than the world has. And I never had that before, so now I have the belief and I have the evidence that go hand in hand. He doesn't ask us to believe without evidence. That sits not well with you. Think about what Luke writes at the beginning of the book of Acts when he says, I've set down these many convincing truths to you, Theophilus convincing truths. He's setting down in order evidence for what Christ has done, all he began to do and to teach. So those things are part of our faith. 
We need to understand that God is not a God that wants us to check out mentally so we can engage spiritually, but he wants the whole person to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. It says they were persuaded, and that's really, really important. God is not opposed to honest questions, and he's able to answer all that we could bring. My faith is stronger now because I know that faith and evidence are not in uh, contra- they're not contrary to one another. So Paul reasons from the evidence from Scripture and from the facts of history. And then I'd like you to notice there in verse 4, it says that they joined Paul and Silas. Actually, it literally says they cast, they cast in their lots with them. They cast in their lots with them. It's like buying all in. And it seems to me uh, it, this means to be joined in close association. And what that does is it also takes on all the privilege and liabilities of being a Christian uh, liabilities, yeah, liabilities. You got to pay a price if you walk with Jesus. Did you know that? Okay, but don't get disconcerted because there's a bigger price in not following Jesus. Come on, both in this world and in the life to come. So uh, it's it's a trade off. There's trade offs. Which one are you going to choose? So they joined with Paul and Silas. The so the message um, they were told they held on to, and the church was born in Thessalonica there along the Via Ignatia. In First Thessalonians 1.8, the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia, but also Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Finally here, the way through opposition. There's a way that goes through opposition in verses 5 through 9. Says, but other Jews were jealous. So some were persuaded, and now other Jews are jealous. So they rounded up some of the bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob. It's always important if you want to get rid of people, form a mob. And they started a riot in the city, and they rushed to Jason's house, searched for Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world. Um, hold on just one second. I, w- I took this out of my notes, but in light of my little uh, soapbox about evidence. I think it's important to mention here when it says city officials, it uses a very specific word, politarchs, that wouldn't be true in other cities but is true in Thessalonica. And Luke uses that word here, and it shows he knows exactly what's going on, okay, that this is a historical, it's a historical book. All right, so they dragged them out before the city officials, the politarchs. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So I'd like you to notice that there was opposition from the Jewish population here, and it spread into the city at large. Um, I think, first of all, they were jealous because they were they were losing power and influence. The, those who were part of the synagogue saw that now Paul has come along and there's a little bit of jealousy there. A mob arose because they didn't have the power to compel the officials by themselves. They had to get more people on board. And, and this often is the case, is if you don't have enough power of yourself, you can talk to other people and get them on board to fight against this other person or whatever they're doing. And then... Um, it says that they cause trouble all over the world. That's what witnessing does, is it 
causes trouble all over the world. It turns the world upside down. It's one of the reasons why communist governments don't like the gospel. It's because they don't. They realize that it takes power from their uh, their totalitarian regime, and it places it in another king who has another set of laws. And so often, communist uh, countries will seek to stamp out the gospel so that they don't have to fight that influence. Notice that what uh, they were doing was declaring another king. We just read that. They're declaring another king. This is in verse 7. They're defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king called Jesus. This is especially important here. And I think it has implications for us too. But in Thessalonica, they had achieved, I told you about how they helped out. um, I didn't tell you that, how they helped out. Mark Antony and Octavian in a battle against uh, Brutus and Cassius, and because of their loyalty there, the cities, uh, the city of Thessalonica petitioned um, with their loyalty in order to achieve this high-favored status. And that doesn't sound very interesting, but what is interesting in this is that because they were faithful, their taxes were lower, they had special privileges as citizens. In other words, it affected their economy in a really good way to be loyal to Caesar. Okay? So for, for us, what that would mean is that like, we make more, we get to live in better houses, we get to have more toys, we, we get to live kind of the American dream. That's what it would mean for us. And if somebody came along, even if they're preaching some kind of truth, if it threatens that, there's going to be a lot of people who are mad. And you know that even sometimes Christians get mad if you preach the truth, but it threatens how they live. We don't want to give up our comforts. We don't want to give up our, our ease or our dream. Of, we always dreamed of this. You can put, put in your uh, little template of what that might look like. But we, we dream of that. Once that begins to get threatened, people start getting mad about it. And that's, I think, what happened here is that Thessalonica had come to that place where they were given breaks on taxes and preference from Rome. And the most sure way to threaten that is to have a group of people within the city saying there's another king. Caesar doesn't take kindly to that. You remember, this was important when the religious leaders tried to get the tried to get Jesus crucified, and they went to Pilate. And Pilate was like, I don't see anything wrong with him. And then they said this, if you let him go, he claims to be another king. You're no friend of Caesar's. And all of a sudden, Pilate, th- fear began to set in, and he thought, what will happen to me if I'm not seen as a friend of Caesar? The same thing happened across the Roman Empire. So this would have set the church in a bad light from the beginning against culture, against the gods, against Rome. And the point I wanted to make here is that in the world, we're going to find ourselves in a conflict of allegiances. Okay, this, We're right at the end, so hold me with me on this thought. There is a conflict of allegiances that we're going to have to face, face down. People will not always understand, and if you raise your kids to think that gender is assigned by God and not free for us to tamper with, People who think that we create ourselves are not going to understand that, right? People who think that the government is the answer to all of our problems will not understand when we give our first allegiance to Christ. If you believe that sex is for monogamous heterosexual marriage, 
then you will find that people will not understand who think that contraceptives have taken away all the need for any old-fashioned way of thinking. But we, we have certain views, not because we, we love certain views, but we have those views because we love righteousness and we want to please God. And that's going to cause us to live a certain way because we're in allegiance to the king. But I'd like you to notice, uh, in a sense, it's going to be okay. Can I tell you that it's going to be okay? Like, you might think we're getting more and more anti-God and start thinking about morals, okay? Yes, it's true, but let me tell you the sense in which it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because God will make sure that everybody understands in the end what is right. The way through opposition, then, is faith, hope, and love. And I'm going to expand on that another time. But for now, let me say that trust in God is the way to allegiance through all opposition. One of my favorite um, scenes from the Count of Monte Cristo is when this local official is talking to his father. And uh, Napoleon has been forced to abdicate his throne and is exiled to the island of Alba. And while... But he has, he has plans to return to seize power. Napoleon does. This local official is part of a fashionable government that's currently in power. And he wants to keep Napoleon out of France. And he sees his father's loyalty to Napoleon as old-fashioned and dangerous and even treasonous in the current political climate. His father carries this little walking stick that has a bust of Napoleon on the end of it. And um, he says to his son, his father says to his son, one day the emperor will return, and then I will be the patriot and you will be the traitor. And I think that's how we kind of need to look at things in this world is that in the present moment, there is opposition to King Jesus. We witness through that. We witness through that because we want to save some, Right? We'd like everybody to be saved, but we want to see some saved. But there's going to come a time when the loyalty will all be shifted and it will be shown for what it is. That if you feel like you're a traitor now to the world because you don't go along with certain things, you don't buy into the self-esteem idea, you don't buy into um, secular humanism or whatever the, the current philosophy is, you don't buy into that, you follow Christ, you can feel like you're on the outside, and they can make people can make you feel like you're narrow-minded and hateful. We're trying to follow God here. And I will tell you that the day will come when God will show everything as it really is. Listen to these verses, and that bring, this will bring us to our conclusion here. It's just a matter of time. The death dirge to the world's empires will be sung. It already has prophetically. It's in uh, Revelation 18, 2 through 5. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The king of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. 
And that's the indictment on this world. And it's one of the reasons we reach out to people in witness is that we want to bring them out of rebellion and into allegiance to the true King of kings and Lord of lords. It goes on to say in chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is faithful and true. With justice he judges and he wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The way through opposition is faith in Christ. The Bible tells us uh, with Paul he stays for three more Sabbaths and then it begins to escalate and he has to move on to the next city where he goes to Berea. He preaches to them. He doesn't let opposition stop him from proclamation, from preaching the gospel. Um, I had a professor in Bible college. We had a class called personal evangelism and my professor in Bible college was a used car salesman while he was in Bible college and he said one of the things he learned while he was selling cars was that the principle for him, maybe he was good, I don't know, but the principle for him was that four out of five people are not going to buy a car. It's the fifth person that he experienced would buy a car. And he said, the Lord showed him this principle that if you're willing to face rejection four out of five times to sell a car, won't you face a little bit of rejection and opposition for the sake of seeing one person come to Christ? He said it changed his heart and mind, and it stuck with me these 20 plus years, 23 years since, and, and more since having that class. And so it makes a difference that we're willing to stand up for what's right. We have the opportunity to bring the life-giving word. And if you need to take the pressure off a little bit, we don't change anyone. Do you know that? We go and we give people opportunity to know Jesus. We proclaim. We tell our story. We, we tell the truth. We take people along the Romans road. We need to, but we, we don't change people. You can't change a heart. Only God can do that. And so there's a sense in which the pressure's off. You don't have to make people Christians. God makes people Christian. We, as the church, help make disciples. Okay? And that follows after. And so I want to encourage us, let's uh, follow the way and go give opportunity. Sometimes it's going to look like a very usual, really unspectacular way. But do you know that God uses things like that too to reach the world? Let's follow him in it. Let's understand the message we're proclaiming, proclaiming. That's when you mash up, proclaim, and preach together. When you do that, um, people's lives are changed. And remember that we have the message of the gospel that impacts lives. And because of this, a church was born, and the church will continue to grow as long as there are people that are witnessing to the goodness of Christ. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention today. All right. Why don't we bow our heads here? We're going to turn the lights down for a moment. I wonder if anybody here would just say to the Lord, God, um, I want to be a witness for you. Would you empower me to do it? And will you show me 
Will you show me how? Will you walk with me through this? Just make yourself available to him to be a witness. It's going to take boldness. Do you know, when I really experienced God beginning to do some big things in my life, is I made a decision to follow, and I started reading the Bible, but it was when I was bold enough somehow to overcome fear. And I was afraid, but something inside of me was compelling me to talk to my friend about him. When I started to do that, I started to care less and less about that, more and more about pleasing God. Maybe you're at a place where you're you're held up somewhere with something. There's a blockage to this. Would you pray for God to show you what it is? And would you give it to Him? Make yourself available to the Lord today to be a witness. Okay, I'm going to ask you to say to the Lord, Lord, you see all my the common stuff and the uncommon stuff, the practical and the impractical, and I give it all to you. And I just want it to be a yes. I want my life in some way to point people to you. Help me to have the words. Let's open up to him today to do that. Maybe right now as you're praying this, you have somebody God's putting on your heart. Maybe... um, You've already known of that someone that you need to reach out to, and it's just been a kind of a arm arm's length from doing what God's asked you to do. Would you surrender and take a chance? Take a chance and love people and share the gospel with them. Okay, in just a moment, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to come, spend a few moments with the Lord. You can pray. Lord, help me to know how to witness to this person. You might pray, Lord, um, help me to be a better witness generally, but an altar is a good place to start. Let me ask you today, if you've never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior and uh, you're hearing about this, I would love to help you to meet the King, the King that's worthy of all of our lives, Jesus who died for our sins. You might have Come into this place carrying a load of guilt, a weight of guilt. Maybe you feel like it's oppressive, like you can't even you can't even breathe in life because it's so heavy. Whatever it is, there's not freedom there. There's there's constraint. Jesus can come and change that. Would you would you say to him today, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, for Jesus' sake. Tell him, I'm going to give my life to you. He died for you. He rose again so that you could be saved. That's the gospel. So you could know God, so that you could be right with God, so that your guilt could be taken away and your sins forgiven. You'd be declared righteous in Jesus. And you'd have a new destiny. You'd have a new family, this body, and all true Christians all around the globe become part of the family of God. You become part of the family of God, and that could be yours today. Jesus, be merciful to me. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, before you go today, would you come see me? I'd love to pray with you and talk to you and help you get in the, go in the right direction. But as these altars open, you're welcome to come too. So I'm going to do that now. I'm going to open these altars up, and I'm going to go pray right over here for a moment and ask the Lord to help me in witnessing. And uh, would you ask the Lord to help you too? Man, every one of us is a witness. Every one of us is a preacher. All right. And it all happens. We don't even have to take a road. Sometimes it's right in our home. And 
across the street and people we already know. So let's take it and let's go do it. Let's do what God's called us to do. Father, help us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.